8. As, that island to vaporize the liquid, and furthermore to set fire to the gas thus formed, these heated gases burn with a bright yellow flame. 143. The oil lamp. The simple candle of our ancestors was now replaced by the oil lamp, which gave a brighter, steadier, and more permanent illumination. The principle of the lamp is similar to that of the candle, except that the wick is saturated with kerosene or oil rather than with fat. The heat from the burning wick is sufficient to change the oil into a gas and then to set fire to the gas. By placing a chimney over the burning wick, a constant and uniform draft of air is maintained around the blazing gases, and hence a steady and flickering light is obtained. Gases and carbon particles are set free by the burning wick, in order that the gases may burn and the solid particle glow. A plentiful supply of oxygen is necessary. If the quantity of air is insufficient, the carbon particles remain and burn and form soot. A lamp smokes when the air which reaches the wick is insufficient to burn the rapidly formed carbon particles. This explains the danger of turning a lamp wick too high and producing more carbon particles than can be oxidized by the air emitted through the lamp chimney. One great disadvantage of oil lamps and oil stoves is that they cannot be carried safely from place to place. It is almost impossible to carry a lamp without spilling the oil. The flame soon spreads from the wick to the overflowing oil and in consequence the lamp blazes and an explosion may result. Candles, on the other hand, are safe from explosion. The dripping grease is unpleasant but not dangerous. The illumination from a shaded oil lamp is soft and agreeable, but the trimming of the wicks, the refilling of bowls, and the cleaning of chimneys require time and labor. For this reason, the introduction of gas met with widespread success. The illumination from an ordinary gas jet is stronger than that from an ordinary lamp, and the stronger illumination added to the greater convenience has made gas a very popular source of light. 144 gas burners and gas mantles. For a long time, the only gas flame used was that in which the luminosity resulted in heating particles of carbon to incandescence. Recently, however, that has been widely replaced by use of a Bunsen flame upon an incandescent mantle, such as the Wellsbuck. The principle of the incandescent mantle is very simple. When certain substances, such as thorium and cerium, are heated, they do not melt or vaporize, but glow with an intense bright light. Wellsbot made use of this fact to secure a burner in which the illumination depends upon the glowing of an incandescent, solid mantle, rather than upon the blazing of a burning gas. He made a cylindrical mantle of thin fabric, and then soaked it in a solution of thorium and cerium until it became saturated with the chemical. The mantle thus impregnated with thorium and cerium is placed on the gas jet, but before the gas is turned on, a lighted match is held to the mantle in order to burn away the thin fabric. After the fabric has been burned away, there remains a coarse gauze mantle of the desired chemicals. If now the gas cock is opened, the escaping gas is ignited. The heat of the flame will raise the mantle to incandescence and will produce a brilliant light. A very small amount of burning gas is sufficient to raise the mantle to incandescence. And hence, by the use of a mantle, intense light is secured at little cost. The mantle saves us gas because the cock is usually turned on full, whether we use a plain burner or a mantle burner. But, nevertheless, gas is saved, because when the mantle is adjusted to the gas jet, the pressure of the gas is lessened by a mechanical device and hence less gas escapes and burns. By actual experiment, it has been found that an ordinary burner consumes about five times as much gas per candle power as the best incandescent burner, and hence is about five times as expensive. One objection to the mantles is their tendency to break. 
but if the mandals are carefully adjusted on the burner and are not roughly jarred in use, they last many months, and since the best quality cost only 25 cents, the expense of renewing the mandals is slight. 145. Gas for cooking. If a cold object is held in the bright flame of an ordinary gas jet, it becomes covered with soot, or particles of unburned carbon. Although the flame is surrounded by air, the central portion of it does not receive sufficient oxygen to burn up the numerous carbon particles constantly thrown off by the burning gas, and hence many carbon particles remain in the flame as glowing, incandescent masses. That some unburned carbon is present in a flame is shown by the fact that whenever a cold object is held in the flame, it becomes smoked or covered with soot. If enough air were supplied to the flame to burn up the carbon as fast as it was set free, there would be no deposition of soot on objects held over the flame or in it, because the carbon would be transformed into gaseous matter, and burned carbon would be objectionable in cooking stoves where utensils are constantly in contact with the flame and for this reason cooking stoves are provided with an arrangement by means of which additional air is supplied to the burning gas in quantities adequate to ensure complete combustion of the rapidly formed carbon particles. An opening is made in the tube through which gas passes to the burner, and as the gas moves past this opening, it carries with it a draft of air. These openings are visible on all gas stoves, and should be kept clean and free of clogging, in order to ensure complete combustion, so long as the supply of air is sufficient. The flame burns with a dull blue color, but when the supply falls below that needed for complete burning of the carbon, the blue color disappears, and a yellow flame takes its place, and with the yellow flame the deposition of soot is inevitable. 146. By-products of coal gas. Many important products besides illuminating gas are obtained from the distillation of soft coal. Ammonia is made from the liquids which collect in the condensers, aniline, the source of exquisite dyes, is made from the thick tarry distillate, and coke is the residue left in the clay retorts. The coal tar yields not only aniline, but also carbolic acid and naphthalene, both of which are commercially valuable, the former as a widely used disinfectant, and the latter as a popular moth preventive. From a ton of good gas producing coal can be obtained about 10.000 cubic feet of illuminating gas, and as byproducts 6 pounds of ammonia, 12 gallons of coal tar and 1,400 pounds of coke. 147. Natural gas. Animal and vegetable matter buried in the depth of the earth sometimes undergoes natural distillation, and as a result gas is formed. The gas produced in this way is called natural gas. It is a cheap source of illumination, but is found in relatively few localities and only in limited quantity. 148. Acetylene. In 1892 it was discovered that lime and coal fused together in the intense heat of the electric furnace formed a crystalline, metallic-looking substance called calcium carbide. As a result of that discovery, the substance was soon made on a large scale and sold at a moderate price. The cheapness of calcium carbide has made it possible for the isolated farmhouse to discard oil lamps and to have a private gas system. When the hard, gray crystals of calcium carbide are put in water, they give off acetylene, a colorless gas which burns with a brilliant white flame. If bits of calcium carbide are dropped into a test tube containing water, bubbles of gas will be seen to form and escape into the air, and the escaping gas may be ignited by a burning match held near the mouth of the test tube. When chemical action between the water and carbide has ceased, and gas bubbles have stopped forming, slaked lime is all that is left of the dark gray crystals which were put into the water. When calcium carbide is used as a source of illumination, 
the crystals are mechanically dropped into a tank containing water, and the gas generated is automatically collected in a small sliding tank. Once it passes through pipes to the various rooms, the slaved line, formed while the gas was generated, collects at the bottom of the tanks and is removed from time to time. The cost of an acetylene generator is about 50 for a small house, and the cost of maintenance is not more than that of lamps. The generator does not require filling oftener than once a week, and the labor is less than that required for oil lamps. In a house in which there were 20 burners, the tanks were filled with water and carbide but once a fortnight. Acetylene is seldom used in large cities, but it is very widely used in small communities and is particularly convenient in more or less remote summer residences. Electric lights. The most recent and the most convenient lighting is that obtained by electricity. A fine, hair-like filament within a glass bulb is raised to incandescence by the heat of an electric current. This form of illumination will be considered in connection with electricity. Chapter XVR Man's Way of Helping Himself 149. Labor-Saving Devices. To primitive man belonged more especially the arduous tasks of the out-of-door life, the clearing of paths through the wilderness, the hauling of material, the breaking up of the hard soil of barren fields into soft loam ready to receive the seed, the harvesting of the ripe grain, etc. The more intelligent races among men soon learn to help themselves in these tasks. For example, our ancestors in the field soon learned to pry stones out of the ground figure 91 rather than to undertake the almost impossible task of lifting them out of the earth in which they were embedded, to swing fallen trees away from a path by means of rope attached to one end rather than to attempt to remove them single-handed, to pitch hay rather than to lift it, to clear a field with a rake rather than with the hands, to carry heavy loads in wheelbarrows figure 92 rather than on the shoulders, to roll barrels up a plank figure 93 and to raise weights by ropes. In every case, whether in the lifting of stones, or the felling of trees, or the transportation of heavy weights, or the digging of the ground, man used his brain in the invention of mechanical devices which would relieve muscular strain and lighten physical labor. If all mankind had depended upon physical strength only, the world today would be in the condition prevalent in parts of Africa, Asia, and South America where the natives loosen the soil with their hands or with crude implements figure 94, and transport huge weights on their shoulders and heads, any mechanical device figures 95 and 96, whereby man's work can be more conveniently done, is called a machine, the machine itself never does any work it merely enables man to use his own efforts to better advantage, 150, when do we work, whenever, as a result of effort or force, an object is moved, work is done, if you lift a knapsack from the floor to the table, you do work because you use force and move the knapsack through a distance equal to the height of the table. If the knapsack were twice as heavy, you would exert twice as much force to raise it to the same height, and hence you would do double the work. If you raise the knapsack twice the distance, say to your shoulders instead of to the level of the table, you would do twice the work, because while you would exert the same force you would continue it through double the distance. Lifting heavy weights through great distances is not the only way in which work is done. Painting, chopping wood, hammering, plowing, washing, scrubbing, sewing, are all forms of work. In painting, the moving brush spreads paint over a surface. In chopping wood, the descending axe cleaves the wood asunder. In scrubbing, the wet mop rubbed over the floor carries dirt away. In every conceivable form of work, force and motion occur. A man does work when he walks. A woman does work when she rocks in a chair although here the work is less than in walking. 
On a windy day the work done in walking is greater than normal. The wind resists our progress, and we must exert more force in order to cover the same distance. Walking through a plowed or rough field is much more tiring than to walk on a smooth road, because, while the distance covered may be the same, the effort put forth is greater, and hence more work is done. Always the greater the resistance encountered, the greater the force required, and hence the greater the work done. The work done by a boy who raises a five-pound knapsack to his shoulder would be 5x4, or 20, providing his shoulders were four feet from the ground. The amount of work done depends upon the force used and the distance covered sometimes called displacement, and hence we can say that work force multiplied by distance, or WFX to 151. Machines. A glance into our machine shops, our factories, and even our homes shows how widespread is the use of complex machinery. But all machines, however complicated in appearance, are in reality but modifications and combinations of one or more of four simple machines devised long ago by our remote ancestors. These simple devices are known today, as one the lever, represented by a crowbar, a pitchfork, to the inclined plane, represented by the plank upon which barrels are rolled into a wagon, three the pulley, represented by almost any contrivance for the raising of furniture to upper stories, for the wheel and axle represented by cogwheels and coffee grinders. Suppose a 600-pound boulder which is embedded in the ground is needed for the tower of a building. The problem of the builder is to get the heavy boulder out of the ground, to load it on a wagon for transportation, and finally to raise it to the tower. Obviously, he cannot do this alone, the greatest amount of force of which he is capable would not suffice to accomplish any one of these tasks. How then does he help himself and perform the impossible? Simply, by the use of some of the machine types mentioned above, illustrations of which are known in a general way to every schoolboy, the very knife with which a stick is whittled is a machine, 152, the lever, balance a foot rule, containing a hole at its middle point, as shown in figure 97, if now a weight of one pound is suspended from the bar at some point, say 12, the balance is disturbed, and the bar swings about the point as a center, the balance can be regained by suspending an equivalent weight at the opposite end of the bar, or by applying a two-pound weight at a point three inches to the left of. In the latter case a force of one pound actually balances a force of two pounds, but the one pound weight is twice as far from the point of suspension as is the two pound weight. The small weight makes up in distance what it lacks in magnitude. Such an arrangement of a rod or bar is called a lever. In any form of lever there are only three things to be considered, the point where the weight rests the point where the force acts, and the point called the fulcrum about which the rod rotates. The distance from the force to the fulcrum is called the force arm. The distance from the weight to the fulcrum is called the weight arm, and it is a law of levers, as well as of all other machines, that the force multiplied by the length of the force arm must equal the weight multiplied by the length of the weight arm. Force x force arm weight x weight arm. A force of one pound at a distance of six, or with a force arm six will balance a weight of 2 pounds with a weight arm 3, that island 1x6 2x3. Similarly a force of 10 pounds may be made to sustain a weight of 100 pounds, providing the force arm is 10 times longer than the weight arm, and a force arm of 800 pounds, that a distance of 10 feet from the fulcrum, may be made to sustain a weight of 8,000 pounds, providing the weight is 1 foot from the fulcrum. 153. Applications of the lever. By means of a lever. A 600-pound boulder can be easily pried out of the ground. Let the lever, any strong metal bar, be supported on a stone which serves as fulcrum, 
Then if a man exerts his force at the end of the rod somewhat as in figure 91 page 154, the force arm will be the distance from the stone or fulcrum to the end of the bar, and the weight arm will be the distance from the fulcrum to the boulder itself. The man pushes down with a force of 100 pounds, but with that amount succeeds in prying up the 600 pound boulder. If, however, you look carefully, you will see that the force arm is six times as long as the weight arm so that the smaller force is compensated for by the greater distance through which it acts. At first sight it seems as though the man's work were done for him by the machine, but this is not so. The man must lower his end of the lever three feet in order to erase the boulder six inches out of the ground. He does not at any time exert a large force, but he accomplishes his purpose by exerting a small force continuously through a correspondingly greater distance. He finds it easier to exert a force of 100 pounds continuously until his end has moved 3 feet rather than to exert a force of 600 pounds on the boulder and move it 6 inches. By the time the stone has been raised the man has done as much work as though the stone had been raised directly, but his inability to put forth sufficient muscular force to erase the boulder directly would have rendered impossible a result which was easily accomplished when through the medium of the lever he could extend his small force through greater distance. 154. The wheelbarrow is a lever. The principle of the lever is always the same, but the relative position of the important points may vary. For example, the fulcrum is sometimes at one end, the force at the opposite end, and the weight to be lifted between them. Suspend a stick with a hole at its center as in figure 98, and hang a four-pound weight at a distance of one foot from the fulcrum, supporting the load by means of a string balance two feet from the fulcrum. The pointer on the string balance shows that the force required to balance the 4-pound load is but 2 pounds. The force is 2 feet from the fulcrum, and the weight for is 1 foot from the fulcrum, so that force x distance weight x distance, or 2x2 4x1, move the 4-pound weight so that it is very near the fulcrum, say but 6 inches from it, then the string balance registers a force only 1 fourth as great as the weight which it suspends. In other words a force of 1 at a distance of 24 inches 2 feet is equivalent to a force of 4 at a distance of 6 inches. One of the most full levers of this type is the wheelbarrow figure 99. The fulcrum is at the wheel. The force is at the handles. The weight is on the wheelbarrow. If the load is halfway from the fulcrum to the man's hands, the man will have to lift with a force equal to a one-half the load. If the load is one-fourth as far from the fulcrum as the man's hands, he will need to lift with a force only one-fourth as great as that of the load. This shows that in loading a wheelbarrow, it is important to arrange the load as near to the wheel as possible. The nutcracker figure 101 is an illustration of a double lever of the wheelbarrow kind. The nearer the nut is to the fulcrum, the easier the cracking. Hammers figure 102. Tack lifters, scissors, forceps, are important levers. And if you will notice how many different levers figure 103 are used by all classes of men, you will understand how valuable a machine this simple device island 155, the inclined plane. A man wishes to load the 600-pound boulder on a wagon, and proceeds to do it by means of a plank, as in figure 93. Such an arrangement is called an inclined plane. The advantage of an inclined plane can be seen by the following experiment. Select a smooth board 4 feet long and prop it so that the end figure 104 is 1 foot above the level of the table. The length of the incline is then 4 times as great as its height. Fasten a metal roller to a string balance and observe its weight. Then pull the roller uniformly upward along the plank and notice what the pull is on the balance. Being careful always to hold the balance parallel to the incline. When the roller is raised along the incline, 
the balance registers a pull only one-fourth as great as the actual weight of the roller. That island when the roller weighs twelve, a force of three suffices to raise it to the height along the incline, but the smaller force must be applied throughout the entire length of the incline. In many cases, it is preferable to exert a force of thirty pounds. For example, over the distance CA than a force of 120 pounds over the shorter distance BA. Prop the board so that the end is two feet above the table level, that island arrange the inclined plane in such a way that its length is twice as great as its height. In that case the steady pull on the balance will be one half the weight of the roller, or a force of six pounds will suffice to erase the 12 pound roller. Illustration, figure 104. Less force is required to erase the roller along the incline than to erase it too directly. The steeper the incline, the more force necessary to erase a weight, whereas if the incline is small, the necessary lifting force is greatly reduced. On an inclined plane whose length is ten times its height, the lifting force is reduced to a one-tenth the weight of the load. The advantage of an incline depends upon the relative length and height, or is equal to the ratio of the length to the height. 156. Application. By the use of an inclined plank a strong man can load the 600-pound boulder on a wagon. Suppose the floor of the wagon is two feet above the ground. Then if a six-foot plank is used, 200 pounds of force will suffice to erase the boulder, but the man will have to push with this force against the boulder while it moves over the entire length of the plank. Since work is equal to force multiplied by distance, the man has done work represented by 200x6, or 1200. This is exactly the amount of work which would have been necessary to erase the boulder directly. A man of even enormous strength could not lift such a weight 600 pounds even an inch directly. But a strong man can furnish the smaller force 200 over a distance of 6 feet. Hence, while the machine does not lessen the total amount of work required of a man, it creates a new distribution of work and makes possible, and even easy, results which otherwise would be impossible by human agency. 157. Railroads and Highways. The problem of the incline is an important one to engineers who have under their direction the construction of our highways and the laying of our railroad tracks. It requires tremendous force to pull a load up grade, and most of us are familiar with the struggling horse and the puffing locomotive. For this reason engineers, wherever possible, level down the steep places, and reduce the strain as far as possible. The slope of the road is called its grade, and the grade itself is simply the number of feet the hill rises per mile. A road a mile long 50 to 80 feet has a grade of 132 if the crest of the hill is 132 feet above the level at which the road started. In such an incline, the ratio of length to height is 50 to 80 132, or 40, and hence in order to pull a train of cars to the summit, the engine would need to exert a continuous pull equal to a 140th of the combined weight of the train. If, on the other hand, the ascent had been gradual, so that the grade was 66 feet per mile. A pull from the engine of 180th of the combined weight would have sufficed to land the train of cars at the crest of the grade. Because of these facts, engineers spend great sums in grading down railroad beds, making them as nearly level as possible. In mountainous regions, the topography of the land prevents the elimination of all steep grades, but nevertheless the attempt is always made to follow the easiest grades. 158. The Wedge if an inclined plane is pushed underneath or within an object, it serves as a wedge. Usually a wedge consists of two inclined planes figure 107. A chisel and an axe are illustrations of wedges. Perhaps the most universal form of a wedge is our common pin. Can you explain how this is a wedge? 159. 
The screw. Another valuable and indispensable form of the inclined plane is the screw. This consists of a metal rod around which passes a ridge, and figure 108 shows clearly that a screw is simply a rod around which in effect an inclined plane has been wrapped. The ridge encircling the screw is called the thread, and the distance between two successive threads is called the pitch. It is easy to see that the closer the threads and the smaller the pitch, the greater the advantage of the screw, and hence the less force needed in overcoming resistance. A corkscrew is a familiar illustration of the screw. 160. Pulleys. The pulley, another of the machines, is merely a grooved wheel around which a cord passes. It is sometimes more convenient to move a load in one direction rather than in another, and the pulley in its simplest form enables us to do this. In order to raise a flag to the top of a mast, it is not necessary to climb the mast, and so pull up the flag, the same result is accomplished much more easily by attaching the flag to a movable string, somewhat as in figure 109, and pulling from below. As the string is pulled down, the flag rises and ultimately reaches the desired position. If we employ a stationary pulley, as in figure 109, we do not change the force, because the force required to balance the load is as large as the load itself. The only advantage is that a force in one direction may be used to produce motion in another direction. Such a pulley is known as a fixed pulley. 161. Movable pulleys. By the use of a movable pulley, we are able to support a weight by a force equal to only one half the load. In figure 109, the downward pull of the weight and the downward pull of the hand are equal. In figure 110, the spring balance supports only one half the entire load the remaining half being borne by the hook to which the string is attached. The weight is divided equally between the two parts of the string which passes around the pulley, so that each strand bears only one half of the burden. We have seen in our study of the lever and the inclined plane that an increase in force is always accompanied by a decrease in distance, and in the case of the pulley we naturally look for a similar result. If you raise the balance figure 110-12 feet, you will find that the weight rises only 6 feet. If you raise the balance 24 inches, you will find that the weight rises 12 inches. You must exercise a force of 100 pounds over 12 feet of space in order to raise a weight of 200 pounds a distance of 6 feet. When we raise 100 pounds through 12 feet or 200 pounds through 6 feet the total work done is the same, but the pulley enables those who cannot furnish a force of 200 pounds for the space of 6 feet to accomplish the task by furnishing 100 pounds for the space of 12 feet. 162. Combination of pulleys. A combination of pulleys called block and tackle is used where very heavy loads are to be moved. In figure 111 the upper block of pulleys is fixed, the lower block is movable, and one continuous rope passes around the various pulleys. The load is supported by six strands, and each strand bears one-sixth of the load. If the hand pulls with a force of one pound at, it can raise a load of six pounds at but the hand will have to pull downward six feet at in order to raise the load at one foot. If eight pulleys were used, a force equivalent to a one-eighth of the load would suffice to move, but this force would have to be exerted over a distance eight times as great as that through which was raised. 163. Practical Application In our childhood many of us saw with wonder the appearance and disappearance of flags flying at the tops of high masts, but observation soon taught us that the flags were raised by pulleys. In tenements, where there is no yard for the family washing, clothes often appear flapping in mid-air. This seems most marvelous until we learn that the lines are pulled back and forth by pulleys at the window and at a distant support. By means of pulleys, awnings are raised and lowered, 
and the use of pulleys by furniture movers, etc. is familiar to every wide-awake observer on the streets. 164. Wheel and Axle. The wheel and axle consists of a large wheel and a small axle so fastened that they rotate together. When the large wheel makes one revolution, falls a distance equal to the circumference of the wheel, while moves downward, likewise moves, but its motion is upward, and the distance it moves is small, being equal only to the circumference of the small axle, but a small forset will sustain a larger forset, if the circumference of the large wheel is 40 inches, and that of the small wheel 10 inches, a load of 100 that can be sustained by a force of 25 at, the increase in force of the wheel and axle depends upon the relative size of the two parts, that island upon the circumference of wheel as compared with circumference of axle, and since the ratio between circumference and radius is constant, the ratio of the wheel and axle combination is the ratio of the long radius to the short radius, for example, in a wheel and axle of radii 20 and 4, respectively, a given weight at would balance 5 times as great a load at, 165, application, windlass, cogwheels, in the old-fashioned windlass used in farming districts, the large wheel is replaced by a handle which, when turned, describes a circle. Such an arrangement is equivalent to a wheel and axle figure 112. The capstan used on shipboard for raising the anchor has the same principle. The kitchen coffee grinder and the meat chopper are other familiar illustrations. Cogwheels are modifications of the wheel and axle. Teeth cut and fit into similar teeth cut in and hence rotation of causes rotation of several revolutions of the smaller wheel. However, are necessary in order to turn the larger wheel through one complete revolution, if the radius of is one half that of, two revolutions of wheel correspond to a one of, if the radius of is one third that of, three revolutions of wheel correspond to a one of, experiment demonstrates that a weight attached to a cogwheel of radius three can be raised by a force, equal to a one third of applied to a cogwheel of radius one, there is thus a great increase in force but the speed with which is raised is only one-third the speed with which the small wheel rotates, or increase in power has been at the decrease of speed. This is a very common method for raising heavy weights by small force. Cogwheels can be made to give speed at the decrease of force. A heavy weight attached to a wheel in its slow fall cause rapid rotation of, and hence rapid rise of. It is true that, the load raised, will be less than, the force exerted, but if speed is our aim, this machine serves.